You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. We're going to be in uh, Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to do the whole chapter, so stick with me here. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them till the Ancient of Days came 
and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the courts shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Awesome. Thank you, Chris, for reading that hefty passage. Good morning, everybody. My name is Joey. If you are new here, if this is your first time, I am one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to typically bring God's Word to God's people when we gather. And so we have been going through this series in the book of Daniel for a few months now entitled Living as Exiles, and that's exactly who Daniel is. He has been deported as a young man, probably 15 years old, from his homeland in Judah, and he has been made to integrate into this pagan, uh, evil, wicked, beastly empire called Babylon. And what we see Daniel do is not oppose the culture, uh, not refuse to be integrated, but he, he integrates while faithfully entrusting himself to God. He carries himself with excellence. He loves those around him, yet without compromise. Daniel, we see throughout this story, throughout this book, is just this remarkable person, The hope that he has in God's faithfulness causes him to persevere and carry through. And what we see, which is ironic, Daniel, who's deported by Babylon into Babylon, outlasts the kingdom of Babylon. We see him live even into the time where Media and Persia comes in and invades, uh, invades Babylon and conquers it. So Daniel is this remarkable person who we see living as an exile, faithful to God, yet faithful also in his witness to others. That's where we've been for a long time. That's the story of Daniel. But last week, we took a turn into the weird stuff, like Chris just read. We took a turn into the prophecy, these symbols, this cryptic imagery. What does it all mean? It's kind of freaky. It's kind of strange. And we got into it last week. And I encourage you to listen to last week's sermons if you have questions about a lot of the stuff that was just read. I'm not going to get into it last week. Last week was seeing and observing and answering the question, what is the future of God's enemies? That's what was last week. This week, though, is what is the future of God's people? What is the future of those of us who are following Jesus, who have said yes to Jesus, picking up our cross daily to follow him? What does our future hold for us? And here's the summary. If you want like the short and skinny, here it is. Verse 21 and 22. Here's the future of God's people. It says, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This is the thesis statement, if you will. Everything in in Daniel chapter 7 sort of is unpacking this main idea. So that's it. That's the future of God's people. Let me say it a different way. 
This is our three points for today. Here's the future of God's people. It will be hard. It will be hopeful. And it will be happy. It'll be hard. I'm not going to pull punches today. I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. Following Jesus is not easy. It's not going to make your life more convenient. But we of all people have hope. And we of all people are promised that we will be happy. Maybe not presently. Maybe not in the superficial ways of today. But we will be forever and ever and evermore happy. All right, so future God's people, hard, hopeful, and happy. Before we jump in and see this for ourselves, I invite you to bow your head and pray with me. God, we come before you and we ask that you would give us the courage to follow you, that you give us the desire to follow you, that you would give us the compassion we need for other people, and that you would give us the patience to endure hardship and to trust in you. Father, I pray that you be with us today, that you open up our minds to understand your truth. Lord, that we would be shaped, that we'd be formed by your story and by your hope, that we would not be discouraged, that we would not grow weary in doing good, but that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We would walk forward faithfully, empowered by the Holy Spirit, anchored by your truth. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Our future, what does it hold for us? First, it's going to be hard. Look at verse 21. Let's see this for ourselves. It says, As I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So just to review, this horn is another reference to the Antichrist. What we established last week, and if this is new to you, listen to last week's message. What we established last week is this Antichrist figure is not some end of the age, at the end of history, individual, political leader. Uh, This Antichrist figure is an every generation persona. It's somebody or persons, singular and plural, who appear throughout every generation. They can be a political leader. They can be a king or leader. They also, though the New Testament tells us in the most basic form, is somebody who refuses to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is God. So Antichrist has already been amongst us and will always be amongst us. And this Antichrist, this horn, what Daniel shows us, is representative of this fourth beastly kingdom, which is the accumulation of all of those who oppose God and his people throughout all time. And so this horn and this kingdom will make war with the saints and prevail over them. What this means is that throughout time, those who ally with Satan and his endeavor to oppose God will seem, will seem to successfully oppose God and his people. What this means is Christians will always, as always has been the case, be this sub-community that's marginalized, that's ridiculed, that's attacked, that's persecuted. That's always going to be the case because what Daniel 7 is telling us is that this horn and this beast is going to prevail over the saints. They are going to seem to be successful in their efforts to oppose God and his people. So now, now we experience this marginalization on the social level. Now we are attacked. Now we are ridiculed. Christians are seen as radicals who are narrow and we are regulated to the fringe. And so once people hear that you're a Christian, what typically happens is they become immediately skeptical of you. So that's our experience right now. We experience this kind of sort of social uh, opposition. But let me be clear. Okay, that's here, our Western culture, our 21st century. But globally, historically, 
That is the exception. Globally and historically, Christians have been persecuted, have been brutalized, have been killed and murdered for their faith in Jesus. That's common. The beast and the horn will seem to prevail over the saints of the Most High. This is expanded even more in verse 25, given more detail in verse 25. Look there with me. It says, he, this horn, this antichrist, shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So he shall speak words against the Most High. He shall blaspheme, be irreverent, disregard God. They shall wear out the saints. This literally, the wear out literally means harass. And they shall think to change the times and the laws. That's interesting because that's a reference to God's power and his moral authority. Back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, it says this about God's uh, power over time. Chapter 2, verse 21, it says, He, God alone, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So those who oppose God throughout time and oppose God's people throughout time will do this. They will think to eliminate God and build lives and build societies without reference to him and think to occupy the role of God in this world. That's one way this looks like, this this prevailing, this opposition over God and his people. But then it says that they shall think to change the law. That's a reference to God's moral law, his design. So this means that they will create their own morality. This isn't just this political idea, okay? It's not just this political idea where we, cha- we make laws that uh, oppose the truth and the design of God's word. What this also means is it creeps into the church, as it creeps into these very rooms like this on Sunday mornings, there will be those who come along and compromise God's truth in order to gather a crowd, in order to be celebrated, in order to make money, consciously or unconsciously deceive people into following lies. This is going to be common throughout time. This is how the little horn and the beast oppose God and his people. And so the outcome is what? What is the outcome? You know, what's, our, what's our experience now because of this reality? That God, God's people, his truth, it will always be perceived as a threat. It will always be perceived as a danger. As long as God's people endure, there will be this resistance to a godless society. There will be a resistance to a church that is compromised. So his people, all throughout time and today, will always be branded as offensive, will always be branded as dangerous, okay? Let me go ahead and give you a quick history lesson. Just in case you're wondering, I want, to, I want to give you an understanding of how we got here, okay? How did we get here? How do we get to this point where this is the reality, where we feel this, where this is observable? Here's what happened throughout time, okay? In the 18th century, there's this guy, Jean Rousseau, and he, during the Enlightenment era, uh, introduced this idea that it is not God who, who defines us. God is not the final authority. We can be our own authority. The self, he introduced this famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. The self is the final authority. And so now morality and now uh, uh, the way things should be, it's subjective on a personal basis. It's what I think, what I feel, what I desire. He introduced this idea that that's okay now. We can do that. And then what happens in the next century is Charles Darwin comes along and introduces the idea that God's not necessary because of naturalism and evolution. We got to where we're at without God. So we go from Rousseau to Darwin. God's not necessary. We can be our own final authority. And then Sigmund Freud comes along and says that the self, 
with its desires, with its appetite, are never bad, are never wrong, are always good. And any structure, any power authority, any, any authority structure at all that suppresses that, opposes that, is wrong and should be eliminated. That's Freud. And around the same time, Karl Marx comes along and makes this a societal reality where there's these classes and people groups and any political structure then that suppresses people, that doesn't allow people to thrive, any authority structure, all authority structure is wrong and should be done away with. So where are we at now? God's not necessary. We are the final authority. Our desires are not to be questioned. Our desires are to be realized and expressed. And so what happens is during the sexual revolution and all throughout time, ever since, self-liberation, us being our own moral authority, is now the reality. So you can see, okay, that throughout time, how throughout time, culture has slowly turned oppositional to the Christian faith. And so this wearing out, in stepping into God's role, it will seem to be successful. It says they shall be given, the church, God's people, shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So we'll be opposed. Now, let me set your expectations. Following Jesus, wearing his name, Christian, <laughs> was never, ever promised to be easy. Political power, cultural power, never came along hand in hand with following Jesus. It's never, ever been the guarantee. If you follow Jesus, you will face more opposition from the enemy and those who are allied with him. So look, there will be times you get passed over for promotions. There will be times you might get terminated because of your faith. You will have to, therefore, you know, in this time, intentionally disciple your children in this hyper-sexualized culture, you will have to withstand eye rolls and gossip from friends and family when you choose Jesus' way instead of a different way. Following Jesus, it will invite all sorts of conflict and complication and complexity and inconvenience into your life. So it's going to be hard. But just because it's hard does not mean we get to complain. And just because it's hard does not mean we get to compromise. Nor does it mean we shift our hope away from the gospel and we shift our hope away from the church to something else like politics or power. Instead, we preach the gospel and suffer well. How do we respond to this reality that's going to be hard? We preach the gospel and we suffer well. Here's how one theologian, D.A. Carson, says it. He says, as the number of nominal Christians thins out, It's becoming a little clearer who is a Christian and who is not. Christians are encouraged not to be like the culture, but to be countercultural. Pastors and others enjoin us to be like the people the Apostle Peter addresses, sojourners, aliens, exiles. And he says this, instead of whining and feeling sorry for ourselves because the culture is becoming unrecognizable, Christians should align their vision with that of the most mature first century Christians. If opposition amounts to the place where we can be rightly called persecution, well, then we are called to follow the apostles who left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So the wrong response to the reality that we will never escape 
That's going to be hard. The wrong response is to feel like a victim. We're not victims. If you want to be worthy of me, Jesus says, if you want to be worthy of me to be called my disciple, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus sets the standard. What did Jesus do? He, he was like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, yet he opened not his mouth. He entrusted himself to the Father. What is our response to the reality that's going to be hard? Be faithful, but do so winsomely. Do so with excellence. Do so entrusting yourself to the Father. This is going to be hard. It was always going to be hard. Which is why now we need to fill our imagination with the truth. We need to fill our imagination with hope so that we can persevere and so that we can keep on going. We need to fill our imagination with who God is and what he will do. Who God is and what he will do. Listen, it sounds so basic, but it's so important. You will not make it as a Christian in this time, in this life. You will not make it as a Christian unless you know who God is and you know what he has promised. Your understanding of God changes everything. Everything hinges on that. You will either persevere because of it or you will flake out because of of lack of it. So now we're going to look at what Daniel sees. Daniel's vision that he documents. And in this scene, he tells us about God's final judgment. We see who God is and what he says he will do. And this should fill our imagination with hope so that we keep on going. Look at who God is. Verse 9. Okay. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So in this heavenly scene, God has given this title, Ancient of Days. And this title conveys what? Like, what do you think of when you hear that title, Ancient of Days? What your mind should go to is this, something of eternality. That this figure, this deity has no beginning and has no end. This figure, this deity is not limited to space and time like we are. He has lived forever. And therefore what? If God has lived forever, if he is the ancient of days, if he is the alpha and the omega, then we can't teach him anything. He's not surprised by anything. Everything that's happening he authored. Everything that's happening has originated from him and his good purposes. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. No one can teach him. No one can surprise him. Here's how Isaiah 40 says it. Listen to this. And let, this let this truth just wash over your imagination and fill your head and your heart with who God is. Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who had taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody because he has no beginning and no end. He has no limitations. He is the ancient of days. That is who our God is. But then it says, thrones were placed around him and he takes his seat. And that is a picture of authority, that he is the chief of judges. He is the chief of all. He takes his seat in his throne. Here's what John's revelation 
as we talked about last week, Daniel's vision, John's vision, and the book of Revelation are kind of uh, a, a sequel. John's revelation is a sequel to Daniel. Here's what John unpacks and expands even more for us. Chapter 4, it says this, At once John, I, was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden head, golden crowns on their heads. And look what happens just a few moments later after this majestic scene. The 24 elders fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw on the right hand of him who is seated on that throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. That, that, that scroll sealed with seven seals is symbolic for all the events of history that this chief judge presides over. In his sovereignty and his providence guides the course of history. So look, I'm not positive who these 24 elders are. I'm not. My best guess is it's all the Christians throughout all time. I think that's what it might symbolize, but it could also be this thing called the divine council, this angelic council, if you will, that uh, inhabits God's presence with him. It could be that too. I'm not sure. But the point is this, of this, of this grand, majestic reality. These 24 elders, they obviously have some measure of glory and some measure of authority and greatness, but what do they do before this one chief judge? They fall, collapse before him, cast their crowns before him, and herald him as the one supreme being with all authority and all power. That's who our God is, surprised by nothing because he has all power. And the most powerful beings in the spiritual realm, if that's who they are, recognize him as superior and supreme. Only he has that authority to judge. Only he has this authority to guide this power, to guide the events of human history. What else do we see in verse 9? It says, his clothing was white as snow. This is a reference symbolic for his holiness, his blamelessness, his purity, the hair of his head like wool. You know, who has, who has white hair? People who are seasoned, right? People who have some age to them. It's a reference to their wisdom, this God is a sage. He is wise. Look what else it says. His throne was fiery flames. His holiness is again suggested here, but in association with his holiness is also his judgment. These fiery flames, he renders a just verdict, verdict a holy verdict. And keep going in verse 9, one more thing. It's wheels were burning fire. That's kind of weird. Does God really have wheels in his throne room underneath? You know, I don't think so. This is symbolic. And if you go to Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel has a very similar vision and very similar details, but he actually adds one detail about these wheels. It says that the wheels are covered with eyes. What do we make of that? These wheels that are covered with eyeballs, the symbol, the picture is God's presence is mobile. 
that God can go anywhere, anytime he pleases, and he sees all things, he is aware of all things, he does not miss a thing. This is a reference to God's omnipresence. He's everywhere at all times, and nothing gets by him. This description of who God is, is amazing. And it's important that you know this. It comes before the description of what he's going to do. It comes before the description of his final judgment. And this is really important because if this is who God is, he's all-powerful. He's holy and spotless and without blemish. He's, he's completely uh, um, unable to be criticized in anything he does. He guides the courses of human history. He is supreme of all things. If all these things are true, then we can trust his judgment, can we not? We can trust that he will get it right. This is who God is. And now this is what he's going to do in verse 10. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Now this is a referral to God's wrath. And the picture should remind us of this story in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 10, where Aaron, who's uh, the high priest at this time, his sons, uh, his sons Nadab and Abihu, go into the tent, the tent of meetings. They offer a sacrifice, but they do so not according to God's design. They do so carelessly. What happens, if you know the story, it says that God's fire consumes them. This is a picture of that. God's all-consuming just wrath, his all-consuming just fire that burns up anything that is not holy. Keep going in verse 10. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So I believe what this means is in the resurrection, when God's people are finally with him, we will participate with him in the judgment of God's enemies. We will witness the end of all sin. We will witness the end of all opposition and evil. It says that as he sits in judgment, as this court enrolls, the books were opened, it says. Now, this idea of this, these books is actually scattered all throughout your Bible. It's this, I think, I don't think it's around that God literally has a book, but what it tells us is that God has a running count, that God has taken account of all who are his and all who have opposed him. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's called the Book of Death, the Book of Judgment. God has taken account of all who are his and all who have opposed him. And he will take that final account, that final judgment on judgment day in the resurrection. This is who God is and this is what he will do. And then verse 11, I'm not going to read it, but we know from last week what happens in verse 11. Immediately, this says the little horn is consumed. The little horn is killed, burned, and destroyed. This fire that issues forth from God's throne, it consumes his enemies at the moment of judgment. Look what Revelation says. Revelation 19 expands this even more and gives us this picture of God's just judgment. It says, Then I saw, in, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword 
with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an, a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of, of the wrath of, the, of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet, the little horn, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that come from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is a dreadful, terrifying, horrible picture but we know who God is. And we know that when he comes to judge, it will be fair, it will be righteous, it will be holy, it will also be swift. And what all this should do, okay, what all of this picture and this reality should do for us is it should instill into our hearts and in our heads and in our imagination hope. This should give us hope. Here's why, a few reasons. Because we observe injustice all the time. We observe wickedness. We observe immorality. We observe these things, and sometimes it affects our lives, and we think to ourselves, how long, O oh Lord? How long is this going to go for? How long will we endure this? Or maybe even ask God, how, how is this okay? God, are you good? God, why are you letting this happen? We wrestle with these things. But what this reality, this picture tells us is that God sees all, that God accounts for all, and God will deal with all of it. And because God's wise and holy and has all authority, listen, he will do right by us. He has the ability to do right by us. There is no concern that God will get it wrong. And just in case you think to yourself as you're listening to all this, it seems like an overreaction. <laughs> like, why this, this terrifying and dreadful judgment? This, this seems like an overreaction, but listen, I want to tell you this. You might think that your disobedience or your compromises or your sin in your life is no big deal. You might think this overreaction for just the things I've done, it just seems dramatic. But listen... You are not held accountable merely just for the things that you have done because you must understand that your disobedience and your, your um, um, compromises contributes to this breakdown that's happening at a larger level. Your sin and disobedience makes you a participant in the greater whole. Uh, your silence enables others for breakdown. Your silence enables injustice, or your participation in it promotes it and contributes to it. So listen, you're not held accountable merely just for the wrongs that you have done, but you're held accountable for the fact and the reality that our wrongs contribute to wrongs at a greater level, wrongs at a whole. So it's not overreaction, this is just. Here's another reason why, okay, this should give us hope and still within us hope. Our obedience, 
Listen, your follower of Jesus, your faithfulness and your endurance and perseverance, it is not in vain. It's not in vain. Accountability is real. God's judgment is real. There is a final judgment. And so your obedience and faithfulness is not in vain. And again, if you're here and you're skeptic, you're investigating the claims of Christianity, let me just tell you that this idea, this reality of final judgment, it's necessary. It makes sense of the world. And I know it's unpopular to believe in it, but listen, you need it. Because if we throw this out, if you don't believe in this, if you think this is just silliness, if you think this is archaic, if you think this is just religiosity, listen, if there is no final judgment, if there is no accountability, then where do we even get our sense of right and wrong? And why should we care about what is right and wrong? You might think to yourself, well, it just feels like that. Well, it's only an emotional argument then. You have no logic to believe that we should do what is right and not do what is wrong. Without accountability, without a sense, a reality of final judgment, we have no obligation on ourselves to do what is right by anybody else. Without final judgment, without accountability, it doesn't matter. So this makes sense of everything that is intuitive in us. We know there's a sense of obligation to what, to, to what is right. We know we should not participate in what is unjust and evil. But you can't believe that unless you maintain this, that there actually is accountability, that there actually is a final judgment. There actually is a final moral judge. And lastly, there's a reason why this should fill you with hope. God governs the past and the present and the future. God governs it, nobody else. And look with me actually at verse 25. This little phrase I skipped over, I want to return to it. It says at the end that they, God's people, shall be given into his hand. Did you pay attention to that language? They shall be given. Not taken. God is the one who's giving. God is the one who's permitting. God is the one who's in control. This is his plans, his purposes unfolding. They did not take us, it was given. So this means what? The enemy's success that he seemingly has right now, this opposition to God and his people, it's actually all a part of God's plan. It's actually all a part of his purposes. And so listen, we shouldn't freak out because God is not freaking out. We shouldn't obsess over control because God is in control. We shouldn't question God's goodness or power. He is blameless and wise and supreme and has good reason for everything that he is doing. We should not despair. We should not despair or become cynical over evil and brokenness because God will undo all of it in one moment. This is who our God is and this is what he will do and it should instill within us hope to keep on going. It's an incredible hope. But now I want to give you one more thing about this hope to, again, help you keep on going, and it's this. This isn't just wishful thinking. This isn't just um, some system of thought that's a, an option on the table for you. This is actually guaranteed. This is actually real. We have something that we can look, for, look to to instill within us that this hope is certain. It is concrete. You can bank on it. Look at verse 13. The scene shifts and says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
So notice a few things about this figure. We get this figure, the Son of Man, who's riding on clouds and presented before the Ancient of Days. Uh, notice a few things. It says he's coming on clouds. And all throughout your Bibles, what that means is divinity. This is a, a character or a feature of somebody who is divine. So this figure is divine. But also he's given the title, what? Son of Man. So he's also human. This figure is both God and man, both divine and human. And it says he's presented before the Ancient of Days. And then what's going to happen upon this presentation? Look at verse 14. Keep on reading. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Wow. This is incredible because God, the one we just studied, who is not limited by anything, who is supreme over all things, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-aware, all-present, what does he do for this figure, this son of man? He gives this son of man everything that is his. All peoples, all nations, a kingdom, glory, honor. These, these are gods and gods alone, yet he gives it to this son of man but then it gets even more tremendous than that. What happens next? The Son of Man's inheritance, what he is given, is also shared with us. 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. This, this is nuts. What is God's is given to the Son of Man, and what is the Son of Man's is given to us. We are co-heirs with this conqueror. Everything he is set to receive, we will also receive. And what that means is everything that we've gone without, everything that you have given up and sacrificed, every inconvenience you've gone through, every bit of suffering you've gone through, it will all be restored to you. Everything you've lost and everything you've given up, it will be restored to you one day. Everything you've gone without, it will be replenished a hundredfold in the kingdom to come. Everything is yours because everything is the Son of Man's and because everything is God's. This is our hope. But is this wishful thinking? Because here's the problem I have with this. Here's the question I have with this. The only way it would be right or appropriate for the Ancient of Days to give what is His to this Son of Man is if He is worthy of it. And so is this figure worthy? Is the Son of Man worthy to receive everything so that he can share that with us? Is this hope legitimate? Is he worthy? We're going to answer that question by looking at his description and his title really quickly. Look at how he's described. Remember, it says that he is coming on the clouds. And remember I said that is a, uh, a feature of divinity, which means that this figure is divine. This figure is God, which means he is equal to God. 
He shares the same essence uh, as God. This son of man is fit to be in God's presence, yet at the same time is distinct from God. So this son of man is God, yet distinct from God. And this point is amazing. It's reinforced actually all throughout the passage. If you were to look throughout this passage, there's this phrase that's commonly repeated, and it's this, that he is the most high, the most high, the most high. That's that title that appears over and over. It's in verse 21, 25, 27. And for the majority of usages in this passage, for the, the phrase when that most high, when it appears, actually, it's written in Hebrew, which is curious because everything right now is in Aramaic. It's the one phrase in this whole chapter that's not in Aramaic. But there's actually one instance this phrase is used that's written in Aramaic. So, get this, get this. All throughout the passage, most high, that title appears over and over, but it's written once in Aramaic and the rest of the times in Hebrew. Why would Daniel do that? It's to distinguish the fact that there is two most highs, yet they're both most high. It's to distinguish the fact that there is God, the most high, and Son, the most high. This figure, why is he worthy? Why is he worthy to receive everything that is God's? Because he is God. He is worthy, yet distinct from God. That's one reason. There's another reason, though. And it's in his title. Who, what is he called? the Son of Man. He's called the Son of Man. This refers to his humanity. Like I said, this figure isn't worthy then only because he is God and equally divine and equally worthy, but he's also then, as human, obedient and faithful. And actually, this phrase, Son of Man, it's all throughout your Bibles. And what it refers to is humanity in general, but also at the same time to a person who is representative of all of humanity. You know who else is called the Son of Man throughout the Bibles? Adam. Adam was the original Son of Man. Adam, you remember, was set to inherit the entire globe, to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue all creation and fill all creation. That was Adam's destiny. That was our destiny to have this royal, glorious inheritance. But what did the original Son of Man do? He forfeited it. He was not faithful, and he was not obedient. Yet here is this figure who is human, who is called the Son of Man, and he is set to inherit everything. The only way we can make sense of this, the only way this adds up is this. This son of man, this human figure must have stepped into Adam's role. He must have stepped into the stream of human history and obeyed where Adam disobeyed. He must have been faithful where Adam was not faithful so that he could reverse the curse, so that he could reverse what Adam forfeited and give back to us what Adam lost, give back to us our destiny, give back to us our hope. And I'm not making this up because if you were to look at Matthew chapter 26, it says this, Jesus is on trial. He's going into an unjust court trial to an unjust death. And look what it says in Matthew chapter 26. 26. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. 
But I tell you, listen, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Why would Jesus, it's curious, why would Jesus go ahead and identify with this figure and use this title about himself in this moment? Here's why. Because he's being obedient. Because he endured because he was faithful and entrusted himself to the Father's plan. Where Adam failed, the second Adam obeys. Where the first Adam introduced death, the second Adam dies to give life. So why is this Son of Man worthy? Because he is the Son of Man that was always meant to be. He is the Son of Man that is going to make all wrongs righted. He is the Son of Man who's going to fix everything and be faithful to God. So our hope it's certain, because this Son of Man is worthy, because He's equally God, yet obedient. So listen, our future is going to be hard, but we have plenty of reasons to endure with hope and with certainty. And what I want to show you lastly here is that we have so much to look forward to, that we will be happy. It's not going to be hard only. It'll be hopeful, but we are also, what's our future hold for us? We will be happy. Let me ask you a question. What do all amazing stories have in common? Let me, let me think about this. Let me, let me throw out some of my favorite stories here. We got Rocky, the Rocky series, okay? Pretty, pretty good cinematography, all right? We got Star Wars, okay? Lord of the Rings, Narnia, Shawshank Redemption, the Marvel franchise, Jurassic Park, Top Gun, Maverick, pretty good movie, see it, all right? What do all these stories have in common? Why are we drawn to these stories? Why do these stories hook us and draw us in? It's because we love to see and observe the struggle between good and evil. And we love to see good triumph over evil. Not just struggle, but ultimately triumph. See, when we witness good triumph evil, it's very satisfying, isn't it? It makes us happy. We love those kinds of stories. Now let me tell you about a movie that I I don't like. I like it actually until the very end. Inception. Okay, I, that movie, I think about it on a weekly basis. It really bothers me. It bothers me at an existential level. Deeply bothers me. And you know why? It's, I'm not, I don't want to ruin it for you, but like, does the top keep spinning? You know, it's the ending. It's, it's disturbing. It's unsettling. We don't know if it's happily ever after. We don't know if it's all going to be okay. We don't know if it all comes together. We're left with a cliffhanger. Like, that's unsettling for us. We don't like stories. <laughs> we are not happy when there's not closure. Right? We want everything to work out. We want an ending to a story that implies, that promises that it's all going to be okay, that everything gets worked out, that everything gets solved. So we want to know if that family is repaired. We want to know if that couple gets together. We want to know if someone overcomes and, and, and succeeds. We want to know that an ending that implies happily ever after. Finally, one last thing about stories. No matter, this is, this is uh, interesting, no matter how innovative we become as a, as a people. And no matter how sophisticated we seem to be, no matter how smart we are, you know, how, how, how uh, smart we think we are, there's one genre of story that never seems to die out, and it's this, fantasy, right? Fantasy stories are still alive and thriving. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why can't we seem to shake fantasy even though it's obviously not true, even though it's obviously not sophisticated? 
Because fantasy stories take us into a world that surveyed the depths of space and time, where we do not die, where animals and humans reside together, where there are even non-humanly creatures and where the limitations of our reality are lifted. Fantasy stories right, that, that, that transmit to us this idea of no limitations. All limitations we feel are lifted in fantasy. That's very appealing to us. That makes us happy. That's why we can't shake fantasy. See, stories that hook us, stories that draw us, contain good, triumphing evil, endings that suggest happily ever after, and realities that only our imagination and desires can fathom. And when you analyze our culture, there's one industry above all industries that is just booming and thriving and massive, and it's the entertainment industry. It's very telling of something in our current culture, isn't it? That we need stories to give us hope. We need stories to make sense of what we deeply and intuitively feel. We feel as though good should triumph over evil. We feel as though there should be an ending that implies happily ever after. We feel as though these limitations should be lifted. And so we look for that, 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 that hope in stories. That's why they resonate with us. And look, this can't be merely psychological. This can't be merely just we're bored and we need entertainment. What if a creator has put that in our hearts to tell us that these are just shadows and suggestions of the real thing, that all these little mini stories that make us happy are actually pointing back to the one grand story that will actually make us happy here and now as we look forward to it and then one day when we live it ourselves Citizen stories of good triumphing and happy endings and limitless living. It's not fiction. It's not fantasy. It's the real thing. It's the real story. It's our destiny, our future forever and ever. So it will be hard. And it will be hopeful. But let me promise you this. It will also be happy. So, so happy. The fairytale ending, that's ours. The vanquishing of evil and bliss thereafter that's ours. Boundless, limitless living, that's ours too. Everything our hearts cry out for, it will be given to us one day. And so it'll be hard, but have hope because we'll be happy forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in your Son. If it wasn't for his perfect obedience, if it wasn't for his death, burial, and resurrection, we would have no hope. We'd have no purpose and no meaning. But because of your obedience, Jesus, we know that all things will be restored and that everything our hearts cry out for will be satisfied. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.